Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. I invite you to open in your copy of God's Word to Proverbs 30. We are in Proverbs, and I think we'll be in Proverbs for two more weeks after tonight. I'll try to tackle Proverbs 31 in two weeks. Um, I think I can do it. But uh, we've been in Proverbs for quite some time now. And I'll tell you what, Proverbs 30 has actually probably been one of the hardest chapters in the Bible for me to preach. This is testing me for sure (laughs) and stretching me. Um, Today, we're going to be in the latter half of Proverbs 30, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 33. Um, I'll give you the, the big outline right now, and that is that it is made up of four lists of four things. Okay, Four lists, and I'll just warn you from the beginning, they are strange lists. They are, they're, they're strange. Um, four different lists, which seem at first to really have nothing to do with one another. Just four lists put next to each other. And the four things within each of those four lists seem to have nothing to do with one another. Um, Making for an easy sermon to write, uh, to to thread something through there. So it does seem like a strange passage at first, quite a head-scratcher. In fact, I, I told Pastor Trent what passage I would be preaching on. He looked it up. He looked at his phone for a couple seconds and said, good luck. And that was about it. So, <laughs> uh, I, I even looked up, I, I don't always do this, obviously because I, I like to come up with my own thoughts. But uh, for this one, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to look up what the guys that I respect and listen to, what they, what they think about this passage. And so I'll try to find out what does so-and-so look, this, uh, what did his sermon sound like about this? And, None of the guys that I regularly listen to have preached this passage, and I wonder why that would be. But you know what? 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching. And I believe that about this passage. So my goal for tonight is to walk through God's Word and appreciate it for what it is, for what it says, one little step at a time, and, and grow from it. I, I, I genuinely, in reading this, and like, how does any of these pieces make sense uh, in relation to one another? I, it brought me back to a memory I probably haven't thought about since the day of. But when I was a kid, I remember I had a project in school where I had to collect leaves and write a little bit about the leaf and what it was, what its name was, and what kind of seeds, if, or acorns, or seeds, yeah. I think that's what they're called. Um, if they produce any fruit or anything like that. And so I remember my grandpa taking me out to the, the woods, and he would help me pick up leaves, and he would talk to me about them because he, he knew plants really well and trees. And, and so I would look at this leaf, and he would just tell me about it. And uh, I'd put it in my, in my bag, and, and we'd keep going, and he'd pick up another leaf, and he would tell me about that one. And uh, none of the leaves had anything to do with one another. They looked different. They were all different shapes, sizes, colors, textures. And uh, yet all of them could be appreciated in their own right. And I think that might be true with these passages. They, they're not 
at first glance, uh, they don't have much in common. And yet all of them, I think we can appreciate. Um, seemingly unrelated, but together they make up a good walk through the woods. And that's what I hope to do with you tonight, walking through the woods and picking up leaves to take a look at what that leaf can tell us. So let's walk through the woods, pick up some leaves. That's my plan. <laughs> Firstly, four things that don't make sense. Four things that don't make sense. Verses 18 through 20. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four that I just don't understand. That's saying it's the same thing, by the way. That's, it's too wonderful for me. It's too lofty, too big for me to be able to wrap my head around. The way an eagle is in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. So we'll pause there. This is the first list of four. Things that just don't make sense to the small peanut brain of a man that we just can't wrap our minds around. Really, these four things inspire awe. They are literally awesome, right? We just use that word like, oh, that's so awesome. These literally are awesome. They, they inspire awe. They are wonderful in the sense that they cause wonder. How does that happen? How does that work? The first two, the way of an eagle and the way of a serpent, are related to nature, right? They're related to nature. And we're not going to jump down to the second two yet, but notice those have to do with mankind. But let's stick with the first two for now. The eagle of the sky, the serpent on the rock, straight out of nature. And he, he's mesmerized by these. He looks at them, and he's in awe of these things. He can't wrap his mind around them because the eagle is soaring. It's floating in midair with no effort, just gliding through the sky. How does it do that? How does it float? I can't float. You can just think of Agar thousands of years ago, just, whew, that makes no sense. And then a serpent sliding across the ground, having no arms and legs to grab itself and pull it forward, it just moves on along. How does that make sense? How does it do that? I wouldn't be able to do that. And so he sees these things in nature and saying, well, that's confusing. And then, and then the second two is not him looking at nature, but rather looking at man-made and man-related things. Firstly, a ship that man makes, and then the relationship between a man and a virgin. So the ship on the high seas, again, it, ships are unbelievably heavy. I had, a, I had just a rowboat on the side of my pond, probably a year and a half at least. Ian knows about this rowboat. And uh, it sat there because, if you haven't noticed, I don't have a truck. And uh, I couldn't lift the thing. It was too heavy. And uh, I couldn't float it away because it would just go to the other side of the pond. Um, so it was just stuck there. Boats are heavy. And you just think about these massive ships. And yet somehow it sits on water with miles of water going down, and it just floats on across. Though it's massive and heavy, it's 
confusing how this would be. And then the way of a man with a virgin. How is that complexing? How is that confusing and confounding? Well, newlywed intimacy is a simple act. You learn about the bio- biology of that in fifth grade. It's simple. It's a simple act. And yet, the connection that happens between two individuals that engage in that act is really hard to put in words, isn't it? The connection, the intimacy, the bond that is forged in that moment is really hard to put into words. Notice, though, the contrast between verse 19 and verse 20. There's really no mystery about the the adulteress. The the other ones, the other four, it's dumbfounding. How do these make sense, including the man with the virgin? I don't understand the intimacy and the bond that that is drawn between these two, but there's no mystery when it comes to the adulteress. (laughs) He says, this is the way of the adulteress. I can tell you that much. She eats, she wipes her mouth, she says, I've done no wrong. The first couple, that's the man and the virgin, presumably waiting until marriage, God's design. The first couple's actions are mysteriously glorious, worthy of amazement. And yet the, the adulteress makes this wonderful act cavalier and flippant, careless. She does it, goes about her day. Nothing special about it. Forgotten tomorrow. You see the contrast there. It really degrades and diminishes the design that God had for sex, isn't it? And I think this is why it's worth encouraging young people, youth, to wait until marriage to be sexually active, right? Because if you don't, you make something that is very special just a throwaway experience. So this is the first list of four that he gives. And again, those four, the eagle, the serpent, the ship on the water, the man with a virgin, all four of these things bring wonder and awe. Two of them being from nature, two of them coming from the human experience. So what are we to do with this first list? Well, all of them display God's wonder and awe. Because he created the nature, he created man and all of our experiences. There is no greater awe and wonder than seeing God in creation, is there? And so I guess the takeaway that we could get from this list is to look at God's hidden glory in everything around you. That you should do that, and I, and I should do that, to, to see splendor and awe and glory and amazement in, in all that happens around us. This is a wonderfully complex world that we live in, isn't it? All by the hand of God. That He has created the heavens and the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the sky above declare His handiworks. And, and it's much too great for us to be able to compute. And so I think looking at those things, seeing how small we are in understanding them, shows how big he is, 
how wonderful that creator is. That's the first list. The second list, let's pick up a new leaf. Look at that leaf. Four sad and tragic situations. See, no relation to the other list. Four sad and tragic situations. This is out of verses 21 through 23. It says this, under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes a king. A fool when he's filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Okay. (laughs) Let's make sense of this. Firstly, I want us to just kind of see the big picture of all of these. How are these tragic and how are they sad? Well, it's not because they're all just reversal stories, right? The, the slave, he becomes a king. The fool, he, he's filled with food. The, the unloved woman now has a husband. The maidservant takes the place of the, the wife. They're all reversal stories. We can get that much, but, but they're not sad and tragic just because they are reversal stories. God loves causing reversals. David was a shepherd, then he became a king. Rahab was a prostitute and yet became the ancestor of Jesus. Me and you, we are sinners. So God has turned to be children of God. Redeemed saints, holy in the sight of God. God loves reversal stories. It has something to do with got to be something other than just the fact that they're reversal stories. Looking at the the maidservant who steals or misplaces the mistress, we can presume that she managed to reverse the situation by sin and deceit. Probably think of Hagar and uh, um, Sarah and and Abraham, right? Sorry, I'm jumping around there for you. you. That's not you, that's me. Jumping around. But probably the maidservant who displaces her mistress, takes her mistress' place, and lies with the husband, probably thinking about Hagar uh, with Sarah and Abraham. That's not God's order for things, is it? That's not good. That's, a, that's sinful. So that's probably where it becomes sad and tragic. Or you think about the slave who now becomes a king. How's that sad? And that, tra- that, that should be a victory story. We could make a movie about that. The slave becomes a king. Actually, I think they did. It was Aladdin. (laughs) There you go. How's that sad? Well, the person that manages to reverse the situation, but now he doesn't know how to steward this new position as king. He's supposed to rule a nation, and he knows nothing about it. Not good news for the nation. So, let's look at the first two. Back on track now. A slave when he becomes a king. A fool when he's filled with food. These two are paired together because they can cause harm to society. In a second, we're going to get down to the other two, which I think they cause harm to the household. But not yet. Let's jump back up. (laughs) We're going to talk about the slave and the fool. The king who isn't prepared because he was just a slave his whole life, then he becomes a king. He's going to make bad decisions. He's going to lead the nation poorly. And then the fool who eats, 
It's filled with food. He's going to feel like he doesn't have to work for it, and he's just going to sit back and enjoy his full stomach. And so he's not going to be a hard laborer for society. So I think these are sad because it's sad for society's sake. It degrades society. Could you imagine how tragic it would be for a nation to have bad leaders and poor work ethic citizens? I couldn't imagine a country like that. Sorry, that was a low blow. But a true one. So it's sad for society when you have a a leader that doesn't know how to lead the people and people who don't want to work. Sad situations. Legitimately. But but then the second two, the unloved woman who gets a husband, that sounds like that's a good thing. She hasn't been loved. You feel sad for her. She gets a husband. What's sinful about that? What's sad about that? Well, I think we should understand unloved woman, quote unquote, to be related to what Proverbs has talked about all through the book of Proverbs as the quarrelsome woman or the troublesome woman, the woman who causes strife. She fills the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21.9, Proverbs 21.19, Proverbs 25.24, Proverbs 27.15. You could just go on and on about the, the troublesome woman, the quarrelsome woman, the woman of strife. I think this is the unloved woman. I think she's unloved because she's unlovable. It's difficult to love. So I think it's sad. It's a tragic situation for the man when they get married. I, 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 I legitimately, I think that's what it's talking about. That's hard on a marriage, isn't it? Legitimately speaking, it's hard on a marriage when there is one spouse that is very difficult to live with. All joking aside, it is very hard to work with. When, and, and I think that, that goes back to the biblical principle where God calls us to be equally yoked, both running to Christ both loving Christ, both pushing the other one to Christ. Because when you're off kilter and one's running to Christ and one hates Christ, it's very difficult to work in that marriage, isn't it? We're called to, but it's difficult. And so the the woman that is difficult to live with, it's sad. It's a sad situation. It's a sad household to look at. And then it's sad for the maidservant who displaces her mistress. Again, the whole situation of Hagar taking the place of Sarah in Abraham's marriage bed. That's not God's design. That's not God's desire. So part of why this is sad is because it takes God's institution called marriage and it rips it to shreds. Takes what is beautiful and defiles it. So, this is our list of four sad and tragic situations. Next leaf. Four small but wise things. Verses 24 through 28. Four things on earth are small, but they're exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. We keep going. Verse 27, the locusts have no king, and yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it's in the king's palaces. Do you envy me at this point in preaching this? (laughs) 
<laughs> this is difficult to, to really work through and make sense of. Four small but wise things. This is, this is what it says in verse 24. I'm not having to make this up or work really hard to interpret that. We get that in verse 24. Four, th- four things that are small, but they're wise. The first two, ants and rock badgers, I think they go together. They're not strong creatures. That's what it says. The ants are not strong and the rock badgers are not mighty. But they're productive and they work with what they have. Thinking about the ants, I have a vivid memory of going to my neighbor's house when I was a little boy and uh, playing in their backyard and they had this anthill. I wasn't too smart. And I thought, I wonder how deep that goes with those ants. And so I just tried to bury my hand down into it and, and <laughs> see if it was, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I just have a vivid memory of it because I remember my hand just got covered with ants and I just lost it, right? And I'm just like dancing all over the place trying to get all these ants off of me. And now the ants just thinking of ants and that memory just gives me like chills up my spine. But when you look at all these ants just going all over and just thinking about them going all over my shirt and like taking my shirt off to try to get them all out, but they seem like they're just moving aimlessly, randomly and and sporadically with no plan other than just moving around. But But that's not the case. If you know anything about ants, they actually are on mission and they're hard workers with a goal and an objective set before them. They're not strong, but they provide their food all summer. They're not aimless. They're proactive. They're hard workers to prepare for the future. I think the ants are actually, I don't want to stretch this too far, but I think they're just a small image, a teeny little image, of what we saw in Joseph. In helping Egypt store up food for the famine to come. You see, ants were proactive, hard workers, preparing for future days. To be good stewards of their time now for blessing later. And I think that's what Joseph was doing. And so we also are called to be good stewards now for future days. And that's what we're trying to do with the building project, right? With talking about water right now. We don't need pallets of water right now, but, but we will then. And so to be like the ants, to be like Joseph. Badgers hide in the rock cliffs where they can hide from the weather storms and predators that would want to kill them. We're like the, if you're in Christ, you are like the rock badger. Though we don't hide in a literal rock, but Christ is our rock. We hide in the shelter of Christ. And in Christ, as you hide in Christ, you are, to, you are able to weather all storms that life brings you. And be protected to be able to withstand any predator that would come to try to harm you and take your life. Christ is our shelter. And so actually here in just a little bit, we're going to be singing to the rock of ages. But not yet. He is our rock who we hide in.
The second two, verses 27 and 28, the locust and the lizard, <coughs> the locust and the lizard um, are much of the same. They're small-bodied, the locust is and the lizard is. They're small-bodied, but they're, they're not held back by their size, are they? The locusts, they are in sync, even though they have no king, swarming their enemies, yet no one leader for them. What lesson can we get from the locust? Got to really think on this one. The power of unity. Seriously, the, 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 the power of unity. The only difference between the locust and us, we have a king, and he gives us our marching orders. Yet we're unified under Christ. So we have locusts and lizards, small, yet wise enough to get into luxury. <laughs> you see, they, they, they're undeserving of a king's palace, but they're wise enough to go in there anyway. And again, I can't help but see us in that. The imagery of our own salvation, we are unworthy. We are lizards. And yet, we have the ability to enter God's throne room through faith. By the power of Christ, we can enter the king's palace. The lizards. So, four small things, yet wise. Lastly, we're, we're moving on along. Lastly, four powerful forces which have majesty. Verses 29 through 31. Three things are stately, which would be like good. Three things that are stately in their tried. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, mighty among the beasts, and doesn't turn back before any. The strutting rooster. The he-goat. And the king whose army is with him. Four powerful forces which have majesty. If the, if the first list that we looked at, the eagle soaring and the ship floating, if this first list displayed God's wonder in the world, this list describes God's power and his might in the world. Able to strut with confidence like these other ones. You see, each of these, the, the lion, the rooster, the he-goat, and the king, each of these are the most powerful <clears throat> in their own context. At least that's how I would understand that. I'm, I don't, I'm not an expert on roosters or goats, he goats, but they strut with confidence. And, uh, and so I think that's what the, the, the author is saying. Each of these are the most powerful and, and prideful in their own context. No one messes with them in their, con in their, in their own context. So are we to apply this to us? We should be that prideful, strutting with confidence, he-goat, rooster. No, I don't think so. We should never pridefully assume that we are the most powerful in the room. Verse 32 says that, the next verse. If you've been foolish, exalting yourself, thinking you're the he-goat, you're the lion, you're the rooster, you're the king. If you've been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, Put your hand over your mouth. It's a kind way of saying, shut up. Stop talking. You don't know what you're saying. 
you're not the strongest in the room. You're not the most mighty. And in fact, thinking that you are, he says the outcome in verse 33. The outcome is likened to spoiled milk, a bloody nose, and trouble coming your way. For pressed milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger will produce strife or a fight to break out. Simply put, if you think you're the lion, you're the king who can win any battle, you're going to get a rude wake-up call. Better to put your hand over your mouth. Think otherwise. The only way to see this passage, the only right way to understand this last list is to see it as describing God. God is the most powerful. There is no stronger than God. God has no comparison or competition. All we can do is fall before him in awe of his majesty and power. And so, this is the greatest takeaway, I think, from this passage, this difficult passage. We made it through all, ver- all 33 verses. Well, two verse 33 at least. So what's our greatest takeaway? Well, I would say, let us, from this passage, reflect on God's character based in this passage. Think about the God you serve. Think about who He is. He is awesome. Inspiring awe. He is wonderful. Wonder invoking. Boats floating over the top of miles deep of water. Or a a bird soaring thousands of feet above the ground. Who could create such majesty and glory? Rocks flying through outer space so far away from me and you right now that it would take 100 lifetimes before it would ever get here. Who could create such a vast universe? I looked it up. The tallest ocean wave is recorded to be 17 hundred feet tall. Could you imagine standing looking up at that? Who could create such a wave? Our mind is blown as we think about this God who created such marvelous things. He is awesome. He is a God of order. He is infinitely wise. He is mighty and all-powerful. No enemy can stand up against him. No enemy could withstand him. No enemy has a fighting chance against our God. Cancer can't win against him. Sickness and dementia can't win against him. Marital strife and divorce can't win against him. At the end, he wins the final day. He is greater. This is the God we serve. So let us worship this God. As we, like the rock badger, hide ourselves in the rock of ages. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com.